So today's conversation, I think we have to kind of really tread lightly. Uh, I know in previous conversations uh, that we had on political issues, they get oftentimes very heated, and it's, you know, people have very entrenched beliefs or positions on the issue, and it's very hard to kind of have a conversation uh, irrespective of people's inborn, or not inborn, already pre-established positions. And I think the conversations we'll have today um, about same-sex marriage and, of course, how that relates and what the Torah's perspective on that would, uh, would be, um, it's a very hot-button issue. It's a very current issue, uh, even though it's kind of been settled already. Um, and it's also a very personal issue for a lot of people. A lot of people say, hey, especially younger people, oh, I know people that are gay or know people that, uh, you know, as someone in shul told me yesterday, it was very bizarre, he told me that his friend that he grew up with in yeshiva, went to yeshiva with him, uh, he came out as being uh, homosexual and I was married to some really old guy. It's, it's bizarre, you know. That's what he, you know that's, so it's, it's an issue, you know, in, in, in every community. It's, um, but it, it's certainly in, in today's society, what the Torah says about this issue, or what the Torah seems to say about this issue, because we'll have to be very, very accurate, very specific about analyzing what the Torah actually says, um, there's going to be conflict. So what society at large, or at least what the trend in society at large is, is very much in conflict with what the Torah says. And um, we have to try to, today, try to navigate that um, very sensitively. Because, like we said, there's a lot of um, personal experiences perhaps or positions that we have that may be strikingly in contrast with what the Torah has either way, right? So let's first, uh, I think the, the best way to go about doing this is to first, we have to establish what the Torah says about these issues um, and because it's, 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 it means it's, it's been distorted. And what I mean by that is that when we are faced with a conflict between what the Torah says and what kind of society or people today believe, it's a challenge. And we are going to be tempted to try to alter the Torah to make it more compatible, more, more palatable for today's society. That's, that there's a tremendous urge to do that because that's the easiest way out. Unfortunately, we don't try to take the easiest way out. We try to do what's correct, what's accurate. We try to find out what the Torah says, and not, we're, not, we're not giving any distortions. You know? um, so, for example, there's uh, a student of mine told me that he, he met a guy in some retreat, some, some rabbinic-slash-Jewish retreat in New York, and this guy spent a year and a half um, researching, quote-unquote, the issue of the Torah's relationship to homosexuality, and he concluded, after all his research, the Torah is perfectly okay with it. Now, that is a distortion. Uh, because we'll see, there's clear verses, the Torah is clearly against them. That has to be established, and we cannot, we cannot weasel out of that. That's set in stone. How we grapple with that, how we struggle with that, what we do with that, what are the implications of that, especially in today's society, that's really where the conversation ought to be held. Uh, because the Torah is very unambiguous about it, and there's really no room for trying to hesitate and trying to negotiate out of it. So let, let, let's examine the two verses primarily that we have 
uh, about this issue. And I think if we read it, we realize that there's really not a lot of room uh, uh, to, uh, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room here. There's, not, there's no ambiguity really here. So number one, we have a verse in Leviticus 18. Uh, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. Quite simply, uh, this says that a man shall not lie with another man um, like one lies with a woman. Number one. Uh, verse number two is two chapters later. A man who lies with a man as one lies with a woman. They have both done abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So uh, quite clearly what the Torah seems to be saying, right? I'm just reading the verses that have been there for thousands of years, is that this is a prohibition and that under certain circumstances it's punishable by death. Now, this, of course, presents a major problem for us because, A, the idea of being punishable by death for anything in today's society is already questionable. It's dis- disturbing, uh, but also for something that uh, has been kind of normalized in today's culture, um, it's it's very you know it's very different uh, you know it's a very different flavor when we see the Torah is very strict uh, in opposition to that. Uh, but I want to first I want to stress here: uh, some people claim that the Torah says something about homosexuals in these verses. What's absolutely abundantly clear is the Torah says nothing about homosexuals. It doesn't. How so? The Torah doesn't say anything about homosexuals in this verse. What it says is, number one, it says nothing about, uh, about lesbians. It doesn't say that, right? It only talks about a man. Is there any verse about that? And in fact, if you look throughout the whole Torah, you won't find any verse about that. And you might find in some other, in some other literature uh, discussed, uh, um, that discussed that, but in the Torah, like, it's not... Now, in our society, it's all under one canopy, right? This LGBT is all one canopy. When the Torah is only talking about, 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 uh, about men, that's right. So that's, that's number one. Number two, the Torah doesn't say anything about homosexual men. It, doesn't, it talks about homosexuality. You know, if a quote-unquote straight man engages in this activity, he would fall into the same category ostensibly, right? It's the act, not the... Exactly. So the, the Torah doesn't say, okay, there's these kind of people, there's those kind of people, these people are bad, these people... It doesn't say anything like that. It talks about a specific action. The Torah clearly views it uh, unfavorably. Uh, very strictly, we have to understand what that means. Um, but it doesn't say anything, A, about lesbians, and B, about homosexuals. It talks about the act, like we said, uh, and not uh, the individual... Could I just ask, Go ahead. Uh, Rabbi, how, how could you be a homosexual? So you're saying it's okay, the Torah says it's okay to be a homosexual? Well, okay, I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. All I said was the Torah does not seem to label people as being this kind of person, a heterosexual, quote-unquote, or a homosexual. It doesn't say that. Uh, because it doesn't seem uh, that that sort of classification would be... Appropriate. The Torah is not talking about certain kinds of people. Uh, I'll give you another example. Like the Torah talks about people that sleep with their mother, and those people are also put to death in the Torah's law. Is, does the Torah say anything about a sleeper with mothers? Is that a, a label? No. That's just a person who does a certain uh, despicable, despicable act. Right? Um, the Torah. You, 
you're and saying it's like with murder, you're not a murderer until you murder. Well, you're not a homosexual until you engage. In well, that, that that's that. It's it's not it's not that you're a certain kind of person that does those things. Rather, doing those th- th- things puts you, you know, in you have to deal with what the Torah says about people that do those kinds of things. But it's hard hard to fathom that something like that would be in the Torah if if we agree, or at least I agree that. Yeah. The, Homosexuality is primarily a genetic thing. Let's hold that thought. That's a, that's a very important question. Okay, that's how, that's exactly the kind of grappling that I want to do today. Um, but let's first establish what the Torah says, what the facts are. And, and once again, it doesn't say anything about homosexuals. It says the people that engage in that kind of activity. And like I said, it doesn't put men and women in the same category like we tend to do. Yes. I would like for you to also address the issue of abomination. Yeah, so the abomination is said about several, several, um, several prohibitions. Um, and I would say clearly the Torah views it very negatively. Um, that would be a reflection of that. What is the definition of abomination? Abomination is something... something uh, From Torah. Yeah, so... Um, That's a translation deal, right? Yeah, Toeva. It's, it's an okay translation. I mean, we're not going to um, go that route. Well, there's so many things. Yeah, there's a lot of things like a a certain foods that someone eats are abomination. Exactly. Uh, so other form of so, I don't know if it has so necessarily like a, a, a halachic mild transgression or is it the yeah. more? I think we could say. I think extreme. I would. Well, I think we. I think what we could say very fairly uh, is that the Torah does. There we go. English abominable snowman. It, well, it doesn't view it favorably. Let, let, let's, I think we could all agree that that would be a fair, a fair generalization of that idea. Okay, it doesn't like it. That's right. That's, that, I think that, that, that's very fair. Uh, okay, so, I, 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 yeah, so I think, I think let, let, let's, let's, try to, let's try to eliminate possibilities, right? Um, we have a problem now, right? The Torah says something very, I would say, very politically incorrect, for sure, right? Um, that's clear, right? I, I, I think the position uh, today to execute homosexuals is very much at the extremes of the uh, political spectrum, I would say, right? Well, in Uganda... Well, okay, there are some... Of, like you said, it does exist, I'm sure. It's a death penalty... Yeah, and it, it, listen, it, it was in e- too. illegal in yeah, a lot of places until very recently. Um, now, like we said, we're going to be tempted if we're trying to make this palatable for today's society, which, once again, we're trying to tempt the Torah as what it is, right? But there's going to be a temptation to say, well, it doesn't really mean that, or, mm, you know, we, we, we don't talk about those things. Uh, and... There's going to be a, like I said, a, a, a drive, a, a, an urge to try to expunge that from the Torah. We don't talk about that, or let's take a little scalpel and cut that verse out. You know, everything else, all the, you know, the, uh, the four thousand, uh, whatever it's five thousand eight hundred and forty-three other verses are good. Like we don't talk about that. We don't do that. The problem with doing that is that once you take a scalpel to the Torah and you cut out certain verses that you agree with, and the, you know, that you disagree with, I'm sorry, 
then what are you saying? You're saying that what you believe is more important than what the Almighty believes. Or, in other words, what you're saying is the Torah has to be passed through your censorship. And if you agree with it, then you'll accept it. If you don't agree with it, then you won't accept it. And that's a big problem. Because if we accept the Torah as the word of God, then it, every verse has the same value. If it's coming from God, then it's from God, whether or not we like it or not. Now, you know, there may be a lot of verses that we, that, that we don't like. Do we take them all out? You know, because the, what, is the, what does that render the Torah? It renders the Torah the word of man. All right? What do we agree? And that will keep. Well, we don't agree that we, you know, that, that will expunge. Uh, and not only that, like we, you know, by doing that, we take the Torah and demote it. It's no longer God's Torah. That's why, by the way, um, one of the commentaries is a story in the in the, in the Talmud. The Talmud t- gives us a really interesting story, which I think is very much germane to this subject. It talks of the Romans sending. Uh, a team of scholars to study the Torah. So they send a team of scholars to study the Torah, and this is true. It's this part is of the well, Torah, yeah, this yes, 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 yes. Uh, which was, it was common at the time, right? Okay. Um, and they wanted to see if there's anything objectionable in the Torah. And they sent a team, and they were there for many years in the academy studying every part of the Torah. And they left, and they said, "There's only one thing that we have that's problematic with the Torah." Uh, and but you should know when we go to Rome and we give them our full report, we won't tell them about it because we know that if they do that, they might slaughter another hundred thousand Jews. That's the story. And the question that the commentators ask is, you know, the Jews obviously knew that this part was objectionable. Why did they have to tell them about it? Yeah, why the Rome. Why did the Roman team of scholars? Why do you have to tell them all the laws that you, that that potentially would be? So it was just this part that Romans thought was objectionable. Well, not this particular part. It was a different part with regards to the laws of uh, discrepancy. There was a discrepancy in the laws of what happens when someone damages the property of a Jew versus damages the property of a non-Jew. There was a you know there's a discrepancy. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. But okay. Either way. Um, they said, this is the one thing we, 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 don't, we don't agree with, but because we love the Torah and in general, we're going to ignore that in our report. And the question that was asked is, if the Jews knew, and they did, that when this team of scholars was coming to investigate the Torah, the, the life of many Jewish communities was in balance. Right? It was it, it, because if they found something they didn't like with the Torah, they reported to their higher-ups in the Roman uh, leadership, they would use that as fodder to destroy Jewish communities. So why did they not just take it out of the Torah? Just ignore it. And the answer given is because even if, even if it means that we will suffer mortally, we cannot alter the Torah. By altering the Torah, we are reneging upon our religion. Our religion is predicated on the fact that we have a godly Torah. If we say, this part is out, that part's out, if we take our own censorship to the Torah, we are contradicting the very baseline of our religion. The basis, the foundation is that the Torah is from God. And if, it's, you know, and if we take one verse out even, one word out, then we are qualifying the Torah as being up to our censorship. And editorship. 
And that is a very dangerous thing to do. So that's really not an option. Um, it's not an option for us to say, okay, let's take this verse out. There was a, a rabbi um, who made a speech on Yom Kippur, because by the way, these verses are read in Yom Kippur. And the rabbi said on his speech that we want to make the homosexuals, the homosexual community feel comfortable in our shul. Therefore, we're not going to read this on Yom Kippur. That's what he made his speech. We're going to take this verse out. Now, the only reason why they'll take it out of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur and not the rest of the, uh, of the year is because, I'm saying the rest of the year, probably the shul's empty. Um, but w- w- what, what message does that send to the constituents? It, it sends that a message that the Torah is fungible. The Torah is malleable. The Torah is up to us to decide what we like and what we don't like. And also, it's one of the very basic, I think this relates very well, one of the basic reasons you know, we rejected Jesus at the time was we thought Jesus was uh, violating the Torah. Absolutely. So, and therefore could not, and Jesus, the Messiah had no uh, ability, no authority to uh, abrogate the Torah. That's absolutely right. So. That's right. And, and, and so much so we're told if anyone comes and tries to change one word of the Torah, even if they do miracles and, you know, and they're prophets and they're really talented and really gregarious and really charismatic and great Torah scholars. It doesn't matter. That is a fraud. But, so, so what you have to do and what, you know, the Torah is vague in a lot of ways, purposefully. So it's a matter of how people interpret Well, but this, but is there room for interpretation? This isn't very vague. It's relatively... It's, yeah, vague. that's the problem. And, and I, I, I want to conclude that I, I really think if we're being fair we have to realize that the truth is there's no easy reconciliation. We're half going to actually address the issues as is. So, Torah, this aspect of it, many other aspects, are they applicable or pertinent to your personal beliefs or to the community at large? What do you mean? Because personally you can say and claim that say homosexuality is abomination. Yes. However, does it Yes. So let's. So so. so okay. So I want to break. I want to. I want to break this down to three. Dis- huh? Okay. I, I, so I, I want. I'm, I'm going to address that. We're going to say. Okay. What does this mean for us? Let's say, in the United States, does should this impact our legislation? For example, should this be? Um, um, should we be motivated by this to influence legislation? And if we are then should that extend to the rest of the Torah as well? Means I, you know, I think there's a very legitimate question to ask, okay, Jews are not allowed to eat shrimp. Jews are not allowed to eat pig. Should there be a law uh, in, uh, that supermarkets are not allowed to sell shrimp or pig to Jews? Because that also contradicts the Torah. Does anyone propose that? Well, why not? I'm saying... So you're right. Maybe there's an argument to be made that uh, that we should use the Torah to uh, to to form, to mold our political perspectives, beliefs. But you have to be careful because okay, if once you go there, go go all the it means to go, you know, follow that logically. And I don't think anyone is proposing that. Maybe well, people are. I don't know. Put you into an enforcement mechanism. That's, well, that's what he's saying. He's saying the law of the land. Should the law of the land be influenced by? But that, that's meant only for Jews. Huh? I mean, has there been, there been any move to 
Mm-hmm. Well, in Israel. So when you get to Israel as well, so I have that as a last, the last little bit. So let, I want to start in the United States. That's unacceptable, and and even not even con- that's contrary. Even I think, correct me if I'm wrong, to Jewish law because wasn't that meant just for Jews? It was not meant for. We'll Gentiles. get to this exactly. Amazing. Well, so we're all hit the nail on the head. Happily picked it up, right? What's that? The Gentiles, Christians, happily enforce the very point of view anyway. Gentiles enforce Jewish law. Or no. should enforce you? Homosexuality. Oh, well, well, that, okay. Okay, so I want to start with uh, kind of... Um, I want to start with kind of trying to understand the context of what the Torah says. Uh, try to wrap our heads around this, what, what seems to be arguably a very severe punishment or a severe response to what perhaps is maybe... A, it's... A, it's you know, even if you understand it as a sin, is, is it so severe a sin that it should warrant such a severe punishment? Um, now, and I think we could also have the opportunity to talk about capital punishment because we didn't get to talk about that last week. Um, like we said, the Torah says, the verse in the Torah, that uh, when Jewish law is being practiced, when the Jews have sovereignty over Israel, uh, this sin would be punishable by death, by stoning. Um, what about someone who writes two letters on Shabbat? So the law would be, by the way, it's uh, maybe not well known, but if someone writes under, under, under this same set of laws, if someone writes two letters, a gimel and another gimel on Shabbat, that too would be punishable by death, by stoning. Two letters, not yes, him? not not one. One, one would be enough. Is too. not punishable. One uh, letter. No, I mean, well, I, the, the minimum is two letters. But someone makes a knot on Shabbat, a certain kind of knot, like a lot of things. Uh, that I think the same question would apply. Like, okay, if Shabbat is important, I think some people would ask. But writing two letters or making a knot on Shabbat or cooking uh, uh, something. Well, it's not. It's not called an abomination, but it's, it's under the same law. Terrible. Like. You know, that seems, does that seem a little severe? I don't know, maybe well, it does we, for some people. Does it? We know the story of the man gathering sticks yeah, on the Yeah, we talked Shabbat about it about a year ago, about uh, death penalty for working in Shabbat. Right, so... It was an interesting discussion. Okay, so let's discuss it again. So, um, not only that, we're told that, um, that a Jewish court that kills someone, that executes someone, once every seven or 70 years is a vindictive, it's a vindictive court, it's a bloody court. So we have many, many laws that are punishable by death, like 39 different categories of work on Shabbat, and I think 30 or something, some odd sexual sins, and a whole host of other sins, um, and yet we only kill once every seven or 70 years. Are the Jewish courts incompetent? They're not, not capable? No, they were considered lenient. They're very lenient. So, ha- so ha- what is the oral story? I'm sorry. Story? With regards to what? With regards to stoning. The oral Torah discusses every single aspect of Torah. Yes. So. True. 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 Um, but we have very draconian laws that make it procedural laws. They make it very difficult to actually execute someone. For example, go ahead. Isn't it more an idea rather than leniency that the whole idea 
Mm. Well, the idea is is that there's a mitzvah, there's a verse in the Torah that says, mm-hmm. and the court shall save. And that is used um, uh, to um, train the court and to motivate the court to try to find leniency, to try to find acquittal. Um, now the laws themselves make it very difficult to actually nail down an execution. Well, you have to have witnesses. So you have to have two witnesses, and the witnesses have to warn. They have to warn the subject before the act, uh, and the, per- the subject has to commit the act immediately after being warned. If the subject commits the act ten seconds later, that would not that would be inadmissible. Why? Because we say maybe the guy forgot it, right? Uh, not only that, the subject has to verbally accept upon themselves the consequence. So the person's about to do sin X, the two witnesses happens to be the two witnesses have to be there, happen to be there. They say to him, uh, don't do that. If you do that, you'll be executed with method of execution uh, X, or would that be stoning or whatever it would be. The guy has to say, I know, and that's why I'm doing it. So it's almost like suicide by cop, right? It's, o- it's almost that they have to really want to. Uh, not only that, once that testimony is recorded in the court, there's a very extensive and exhaustive cross-examination of the witnesses uh, that make it very difficult for them to actually, um, um, to actually stand uh, to a conviction. How so? Um, they would separate them and they would ask them basic questions about the crime. Uh, they would say, well, when did it happen? What time? What hour? And then they would ask these curveball questions like, uh, was it a sunny day? Was it a overcast day? Oh, he committed a sin near the tree. Well, what kind of tree was it? Was it an apple tree? Was it a fig tree? Was it an orange tree? Oh, it was an orange tree. Oh, tell me, were the stems of the oranges, were they thick? Were they thin? Like they would ask all these questions. Kind of what lawyers do today. Yeah, well, to try to get the two witnesses independent of each other to contradict each other. Once they contradict each other, we have a mistrial and the case is thrown out. Uh, so much so that, you, that the court, really, their job is to not take the law into their hands. So when we say that someone, that homosexuality under certain instances is punishable by death, I don't know if it's ever even happened. Now, that doesn't mean it's not punishable by death, it means it is, but it means it's very unlikely for it to have actually been applied. Um, you know, did it happen in history? Maybe, it's possible, but it's, you know, is it likely? I don't know, I don't know of any recorded uh, documentation of any such incident. The extradition will not apply to this. There's no such thing as mabjaz. In some instances, there are for some crimes. Um, for example, if someone tries to steal a vessel from the temple, you know, um, uh, or a, sir, a kohen who is impure who does worship in the temple, uh, or to save a pursuer, right? To save the pursuance, to save someone who's being chased by someone to rape them, to kill them, right? That would be an example where you don't need the court extrajudicial meeting out of justice. But those are all exceptions, right? In the court, as this case would be, in the court, it is almost impossible to actually have it done. Um, not only that, and this is, this is the deeper point. Jewish law is different than the law we have in America today. 
Law of America today is to enforce. So therefore, if there is laxity in, a, in, in fulfillment of the law, then the enforcement will go up. Right? If there's more cars speeding, well, then they'll put more cops to stop the speeding, right? If there's more crime in, uh, um, you know, case in point, there's more, there's more illegal immigration, right? We have to have more border agents to stop that, right? Right? Fair? And that seems like a good argument. That that's what it is. It means to enforce the law. In Jewish law, it's the exact opposite. If there's an uptick in crime, then the court says, we're doing less enforcement of the crime. How do I know that? In the year 30, it seems bizarre, right? In the year 30, Talmud tells us, and we know this is historically accurate, the Sanhedrin voluntarily left Jerusalem. And the reason why they left Jerusalem is because the law is that the only way a Jewish court anywhere can give capital punishment is if, in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin is in session. Sanhedrin leaves Jerusalem, they handcuff every other court and disable their ability to give out capital punishment. And the reason why they did that is because the courts were too busy. The courts were too busy, especially in, in murder cases. There was a lot of crime, in violent crime at the time. And when the, court, when the Jewish court is too busy, they say we're not doing our job correctly. Our job is not to impose and enforce the law. Our job is a safety measure to ensure that people recognize the severity of the law that they have to oblige by, irrespective of the law. You know, if there's no cop in the, there's no cop on the side of the road, right? If you knew for sure, if the angel Gabriel told you that there is no cop from Teal Run Drive where I live till Temple Beth Torah and Umble, I'd probably drive 100 miles an hour. I probably would, right? I mean, if it's safe, right? If I'm late. And if it's safe, right? That's what I would probably but do. It's not safe, but I understand. I'm in 95, whatever it is. Okay, I understand your point. But if there's no one watching right, on a Shabbat, I'm a I'm Shabbat observant, there's no one watching, there's no one around, I still would observe the Shabbat. Because I am self-observing, not because of some sort of consequence. But, yeah. I drive within the speed limit or marginally above the speed limit, but, but right? Because idea. I'm scared of the consequences. But, the, but it's not just that. The, isn't the ideal you're trying to say that the Torah is saying is that you shouldn't want to do it even if you know there's no enforcement looking Absolutely. because it's wrong. Because God says Absolutely. it's wrong. And the role of the Sanhedrin, the role of the courts, is not to foist upon the, a, a, a resistant nation observance. So therefore, they shouldn't be busy. If they are busy, then they have to close up shop. It's not their job to say, we're going to compel the people to observe. That's not their job. That's the job in every other law in the world. Every other system of law in the world, that's their job. So whose job was it to enforce? Every individual, every individual, every community. Every parent has to teach their child. Every teacher has to teach their student. It's a Jewish community in general. It's their job in general. When the Sanhedrin's role shifted and suddenly they're enforcing, they're too busy, well then clearly that's not what their role is and they withhold, you know, they withdraw. 
and they say, okay, we're closing up shop. This is not the way it was intended. Point is like this. This is the this is the the concluding point here. If there is a great need to punish and execute, then this is not the intended people to whom the Sanhedrin should oversee. The Sanhedrin, if it doesn't make sense for us that someone who writes two letters on Shabbat gets executed, if that doesn't make sense to us, then we won't be executed for that. Because we're not the nation to whom these laws were intended. Now, I'm not trying to say that laws change. Of course not. Laws don't change. But a nation, it's possible, if you think about it, it's possible to have a nation that is so galvanized in their belief that the Word of God is literally the Torah. The Torah is literally the Word of God. And therefore, someone who desecrates the Shabbat is someone who's doing some of the most heinous crime imaginable. That's a crime against humanity. It's terrible. And that's... For some people, that made sense that they should be executed because they are people... I mean, that's the nation to whom the adjudication of the law was intended. And therefore, if it made sense to them, that's when the court would be in session. What do you define as as a nation? I mean, the Torah is given to the Jewish people. Are you saying one Jew should do this and the other Jew should... No, what I'm saying is that the court, when the court voluntarily withdrew, it was because they were being too busy as a reflection of a nation that was too steeped in activities against the Torah... Thus, their role had shifted from being the, uh, the vanguard, the inspiration, the leadership um, of the people to being the enforcer. And that's not their role. We have to be independently motivated to observe the Torah. And then we have the Sanhedrin comes to give us uh, a framework for that. Because if we're independently motivated, it reduces the incentive to go to court. To oh, yeah, it. exactly. So the only... The only time the session should be in session is if they have to execute once every seven or seventy years. That's the only time it should be in session, right? If they're busy all the time, you know. So someone asked me a question. Okay, assuming they rebuild the temple and they reestablish the sovereignty over Israel, let's just, let's imagine that happens tomorrow, right? They reinstitute the laws and the sacrifices and the temples built and everything is back the way it's described in the Torah. So what do they do? They set up a, a mobile uh, execution platform by every synagogue in America. All the people that are driving into shul, they just one after another. Is that what they do? What do you think? Of course not. What? Well, no, that would destroy a lot of shuls, right? It means that our nation, the way we're currently uh, 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 constituted, or the way we're currently constituted spiritually, we are not holding spiritually, by the level that would demand such a rigid um, um, enforcement of Jewish law. So how does it apply to almost any uh, prohibition that can be found in Torah, homosexuality or whatnot? Well, it, well like we said, the Jewish law is not, the, Jew, the, so, the, the adjudication of Jewish law is not found anywhere today. So we are called upon abiding by the personally homosexuality. Absolutely. Of course, everything. To letter, that's right, right. That's right. That's right. But we, as a community, responsibility Whoa. for enforcing or to abiding as a community, we, it's way 
No, I'm not saying I'm not saying that. Of course, we're, we we are required to enforce and abide by it. What I'm saying is is that the punishments are not enforced. Um, because because why? like we said, like we said, the sentence is not around, and the sentence is not around because it would need to be enforced continually. So, but wait a minute, does is also part of the reason the Sanhedrin is not around is because of the diaspora? I mean, it doesn't it have to only be in Jerusalem? Or? Even when the Sanhedrin was around for 300 years after the temple was destroyed, they did not adjudicate um, uh, capital punishment because it was not a nation worthy of that. If we become a nation worthy of having a Sanhedrin, it will make sense to us that someone who goes against what the Almighty wants in the form of writing two letters on Shabbat, that is something which is an executable offense. That would make sense to us. It, once that makes sense, then we'll have a Sanhedrin to enforce that. So I'm still trying to fit that square peg the round hole. So if, for instance, I have like my neighbors, two homosexual couple, uh, I mean yes. a couple, buy a house next door to me. So what you're saying is I... I am within my right to privately be not happy about their lifestyle, right? You'd be However, not happy, whatever. I should not be gathering stones for when time will come, right? Well, what I'm saying is like this. Whatever attitude we have or whatever understanding we have of this particular mitzvah, that we have to stone the homosexuals, we have to equally look at all the other things we need to stone for, right? Ask him. Yeah. And so what about your neighbor who drives on Shabbat? What about that guy? So it's like so. Leave, gather leave. if you're gathering stones for one, you gotta gather stones for the other. So you're saying leave and let leave. Huh? Um, leave and let leave. Well, I'm I'm saying whatever whatever your position is, uh, you have to realize that in today's society is clearly not holding by um, the actual adjudication of this law. If we were, society, collectively as a nation, then you know what? We would have a Sanhedrin. And we would have the adjudication of this law. So was there any organized Jewish opposition to that Supreme Court decision before? Or legalizing gay marriage? Obviously, we know all, okay, so, all okay. Okay, so let's, so Okay, so let's yeah, talk today, about... Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of Jewish opinion. I don't know if there's... Yeah, there's <laughs> opinion is private. Opposition yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. The law is not. It's communal. Right. So, 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 so this gets to kind of a much bigger picture. Clearly, we see that the Torah is in opposition of homosexuality. It's not against homosexuals. We'll get that in a second to Bernie's question. Uh, kind of the ethical, moral perspective of that. Um, it's not against homosexuals. It's anything about homosexuals. It's a genetic thing, right? Yes. Okay. Um, what about... As Jews who believe in the supremacy of the Torah, should that or must that influence our legislative agenda? Must that guide what we vote for? For example, you have two candidates. One of them is uh, pro-gay marriage. One of them is anti-gay marriage. Should we be compelled to vote for that latter candidate? Is that the question? Compelled in by who? Or oh, by well, our I own, guess, our guess own, yeah. Uh, I mean, as Jews, uh, must we vote for that guy or not? Is still an opinion. However, once say a plurality of society says that this is we do this, not that, mm-hmm. and whatever pluralities can be in opposition to Torah or Bible, the Bible for that matter, right? Should we abide by it or should we demonstrate on the streets? 
Well, I think you could demonstrate that's you know in our society, in our in our constitution says we could demonstrate this around the streets for whatever we want, right? Uh, but I think it's it's very similar to all the other discussions we've had uh, till now, and that is that that yes, I think when you vote for a candidate in the United States, first of all, it's different than voting the candidate in Israel. And it's, it's talking about what should be the government's... It's a bit bigger question of what should be the influence that Torah law has upon the secular government of the United States, right? We, we don't want other religions dictating what should be the law here because that's very bad for us every time it's been tried, right? Um, should, the, should, the, should the United States be governed by Torah law? Maybe you could have that perspective and vote for that candidate. Um, are you obligated to vote for that candidate? I don't think so. No, but you because, can... because, you know, like we said, is the government's role to enforce the Torah? No. But, not, no, not I don't, is anyone making that argument? Government, but I do feel by the same token, and this is where you split hairs to some degree, uh, our framers did say that our, our Constitution was made, well, not every framer, but certainly John Adams and others like him said that our government was made for a moral and religious people. Now, that's a little different than saying that the government should should be governed by the church. But I think that there is some room for influence there. Uh, I agree with and, you. And, and I agree with you 100%. My question is like this. Must we, as Jews, opt for the candidate with the opinions that are most aligned with the Torah. I think we can, but I don't think we, we must, because like we said, right, that's what I'm saying. I think we can, we can choose. Maybe that's a preferred choice. Maybe it's, it's a better world, it's a better society when the morals and the ideals of the Torah are, uh, are reflected in legislation that emerges from the government. That's a good argument. I'm not going to disagree with that. Of course, I, 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 I believe that to be true. However, I don't think we are mandated to vote for that candidate. It means I don't think it's in opposition to the Torah to say that I support candidate X who happens to have as part of the platform uh, you know, being in favor of gay marriage or abortion or whatever. Because, like we said, it's not the United States, especially the United States government role to, to legislate as per the Torah. Now, with regards to Israel, it might be a very different discussion. Because remember... Uh, it, the, 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 the notion of, of, of making a government and gaining Jewish sovereignty over Israel has very deep philosophical and historical, yeah, thank you, undertones um, that really are, are vastly different than, than, than maybe any other sovereign state uh, in the world. Most notably, it was founded to be a Jewish state. That's right. If, if and the therefore, United, I, I think in Israel, we'll get to that in a second, in Israel, it for sure should be a different discussion. Sure. Uh, but I, 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 I find no problem, uh, halakhically, ethically, uh, morally, or otherwise, for someone to support a candidate. That I'm not saying I'm not encouraging that. I'm saying but someone may have the option, if they so choose, to vote for whoever they want. Now, what, would I encourage someone to take, to vote for someone who's going to be bad for Israel? I don't know. Maybe that's different. Because um, that's directly impacting the well-being of many, 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 many Jews. Um, that being said, I think that with regards to, even, even if we, I mean, even, even though we accept the supremacy of the Torah and thus 
we realize that the Almighty has a problem, right? Views this negatively. However, you want to send the word abomination. Clearly, it's a violation of the Torah law for uh, uh, for homosexual, at least for Jewish homosexuals, to gain a homosexuality. That's I mean, the Torah remember was written for us. That doesn't necessarily have to uh, be uh, uh, govern our our legislative choices. Now, to I think what probably is the most difficult kind of dilemma of of this whole discussion. And that's what Bernie brought up. So, um, is it fair? Is it moral to ban something that ostensibly is, or arguably, is? Very bad, you know, um, I, don't, I know this is a, a debate. And by the way, there's sources in Jewish literature that have the same debate as well. So I don't think it's it's set either way. Um, but. Like, there is a discussion. There are opinions that say that genetically people are predisposed to homosexuality, some people, uh, while other people are not predisposed to that. That's one position. It's kind of the more nature uh, versus nurture. Uh, you have the people on the other side of the, uh, of the argument, and I think if you Google it, they find, you find arguments uh, you know, for both directions. Um, that people would argue that it's not nature, it's more nurture, and people are not born, there's not two variations of, of people, uh, and therefore it would be kind of a different, a different discussion. But let, let's assume, let's assume, just for the argument's sake, let's assume that some people are born with a genetic predisposition towards homosexuality. It means, you know, we cannot here settle here today what, you know, how we are genetically... Uh, chemically, if you will, uh, predisposed. Uh, yes, I, however, how, means I, I don't want to go there. Uh, like I said, there's positions on the, the, you know there are uh, there are uh, arguments on both sides. But let's assume because that makes the problem bigger, right? That augments the problem. Let's assume that cer- certain people are predisposed to homosexual tendencies. Let's make that assumption. Let's take that as a given. I'm not saying it is a given, but let's assume it is. That creates a moral problem for us. Right? The Torah says that is a no-no. Uh, yet, we are motivated, or some people are motivated, to pursue that, those activities. How do we respond, or how do we engage, how do we struggle, grapple with those two realities? Remember, assuming... That that is reality, right? We can't say that uh, that God made a mistake on these ten percent. Clearly not. Well, 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 okay. First of all, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, even even if that does exist, it's not ten percent, right? The numbers are are, are infinitesimally smaller. Uh, the amount of people that uh, that claim to be homosexual when asked is about three percent for male and about one and change for females. So it's it's very small, uh, but. To your point, uh, when people are polled as to how many people they think uh, identify as homosexual, the number is much, much higher. So there is a gap between the perception and the reality. Um, That's an interesting question, right? The way I personally grapple with that is, I mean, I accept the premise, I think all of us do, that some people are genetically wired more 
different than others, and and there may be very very well people are genetically wired more to homosexuality, but I don't think you can draw stop it there. I think we're people are genetically wired to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, hetero, uh, heterosexuality and the most extreme form of that would be rape, uh, and and so therefore, do we excuse rape? Just because somebody might be more genetically inclined to be a exactly. rapist. Exactly. Uh, now, a if woman. you look at if you look at the Torah, okay, the Torah has many, many prohibitions. All of them, I would say, are things that people might want to do, because if they were things that people would never want to do, they wouldn't be banned, or most of them wouldn't be banned, right? Because they wouldn't be. The prohibition against them. That's right. You know, people are. Uh, is it natural for someone to like cheeseburgers? Why not? You're looking at one. <laughs> the Torah very clearly. The Torah very clearly bans that. Are you coming out? <laughs> <laughs> it's not been a secret that I know of. But okay. well, you could also say the same thing about left-handedness, and down through the generations, there have been other things that people are clearly left-handedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember it was from the devil and for left-handedness used to be considered awful. Well, not not, not, not in our community. It's not not in the well, Torah. I would with you. Well, no, I would disagree with you. <laughs> okay. We're, what what what? We're not. If you were left-handed in school, they changed you. You weren't allowed. I've heard that, Janet, yes. but I didn't know Jewish law. Yeah. Well, had it. Well, Jewish oh yeah. Okay. Okay, but Jewish law doesn't say anything about it. Left lefties, you know, lefties. The one thing that lefties need to do is that is that if they were a coin. They would need to do their worship, their service in the temple with their right hand. Uh, but besides for that, besides for that, like there's no laws against lefties. No, I was talking about our society. Uh, okay, but our society did a lot of things that are not in line with the Torah, yeah. right? And this would be another example. No, this wouldn't. What being left-handed or? No, the um, the issue with homosexuality. Yes, that is just one of many things. And I agree, like if we said. If you're going to pick on this because they are such a minority in our community, then the other things that are minorities in our community need to be given the same degree of, of, of inspection. Well, it's easy to pick on, as a society, those people in your society that are a minority. Of course. Uh, but, but we are trying to look at it in, in the lens of the Torah, right? The Torah says... Uh, the Torah bans this activity. And it bans others as well. And we're trying to, uh, that's right, and we're trying to understand that is that ethically or morally troubling and like uh, like Steve said, like that is not a unique phenomenon to this instance. And I would say every single thing the Torah does ban could be, people would be motivated to do that and that would be not normal and natural. So this is not this is not a new phenomena here here alone. Suddenly the Torah is banning things that are that are naturally something that we would potentially be driven to to desire. But if you're separating the act from the actor, like you said earlier, being a homosexual is is loving or liking someone of the same sex, not necessarily performing any kind of sexual action. Well, I don't know what it means to be homosexual. Well, I'm I saying don't either, but thank I'm, you. But I'm just saying, if it, if it's a question of loving, or you have to love every Jew, right? Way, an attraction. I mean, like, you know, 
Rabbi Dan says, I'm attracted to men in plaid shirts. And warned Bernie yeah. not to sit there. You were attracted to men. Not you. I prefer strong. Well, well I, say, I would say y'all have a good marriage. But then I, what are you going to do with him? I don't know what you're going to do with him. But, but the, my Let's point go back is to you're attracted to people. Uh, you know, there's no rhyme or reason why you would be attracted to a person. Why you would or would not? Would or would not, either way. I agree with, I agree with her because I think we are wired however it is that we are wired. Well, are, are we wired to eat food? Well, of course. Yeah, anyone disagrees on that? Just because we're wired to something or we're predisposed to something, that doesn't mean if Torah says don't do it, I don't have to act on it. Agreed. And I'm making that, I'm making that point. Are we wired to, to desire food when we're hungry? Yes, everyone agrees, right? The Torah says, Yom Kippur, 26 hours, no food. The Torah is banning something that's natural. I, I want it. It's normal. Of course you want it. Of course it's normal. And that's why the Torah probably now, felt the need to ban this it. This may be getting into different areas, but would it be, un- remember the, the Torah, and we've agreed on, the, or we've, you've taught us this, the Torah does say you live by the commandments, don't die by the commandments, right? Okay, supposing someone, now this probably wouldn't be accepted, but could it be construed that someone who was um, predisposed to be a homosexual, Okay, and they they went ahead and acted that way, contrary to the Torah's provisions on that. Could they always say, I would have, could they make the argument, maybe the Sanhedrin wouldn't accept it, that I would have died if I didn't commit this act. And so well, therefore, I'm, I'm fulfilling the Torah's Let me tell you a story, mitzvah. let me tell you a story that Thomas says. So I'll just, I'll answer with, with, with another question, um, and then a story. So what about someone who is, well, we would say, perfectly normal, perfectly heterosexual, right? They may be predisposed to desire a married woman, and that is not necessarily unnatural, right? They have a genetic wiring predisposed to desire really uh, lovely married women. So, There's no stamp on their head that says married versus non-married. You know. Well, okay. So, still a woman. That's, that's right, and, that, and, then that's, and that's natural and normal. So, yet, it's very severely uh, restricted by the Torah. Also, on pain, pain of death. Now, once again, we see the Torah is banning something that's perfectly natural, perfectly normal. And that's somehow less of a problem for us. I don't know why, but it's another example. You know, I was, well, there was once someone who was speaking about this. He says, he says listen, you cannot marry... He was talking to young yeshiva students. He says, you cannot marry a blonde and a brunette and a redhead. I guess maybe now with hair dye you can, right? <laughs> Right, but but those things like you know uh, healthy humans have sexuality, and that is not necessarily monogamous. It's not. Become a Mormon, probably, if you want to do that. How would that change the uh, wiring? Well, it wouldn't change. Thank you. So it doesn't make it religiously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but even even if it's even if you allow polygamy, there's still married women that are off limits, right? There's really no way to avoid having a conflict. With, with the Torah. Uh, now, to your question, what if someone's going to die, right? So the Talmud gives a story. This is an amazing story. Talmud talks about a guy who was just love-struck or love-sick, and he really wanted this, this young girl. And uh, the doctors told him, if you don't sleep with her, you're going to die. And they went, to the, they went to the court, and the court said, sorry, let him die. So, said to him, uh, so we went back to the doctor, and he says, you know what? Maybe if you see her 
uh, in the nude, then that would kind of quell your desires and you'll survive. Otherwise, you'll die. That's strange. Okay, well, that, so that's what the doctor says. Maybe the ancient doctors are, are different, right? But that's what the doctor says. They went to the court, the court said, let him die, and let him not uh, see her in that way. And the, the doctor said, right to the doctor, the doctor said, let him talk to her at least with a barrier. He can't even see her, but let him just have a nice smooth with her, right? Boring. Huh? Boring. <laughs> like, in, like in the Netherlands. Oh, we're going to get to the no, a girl. Oh, a girl. So I know. Yeah, so there's a question as to was this a married woman or not. You got me in suspense on this one. So. And let him talk to her from behind a fence. And that will quell his desires and he'll survive. And they went to the rabbis and the rabbi said, let him die and not talk to her behind the fence. Why? Why? So the Santana says, was she married? No, even if she wasn't married. Why? So the Jewish girls should not be hefter, should not be free for all. They shouldn't be, you know, they, you know, they shouldn't be open to everyone. The Jewish girls are not there to, you know, to, to, to help this guy, you know, and, and you know, and his and his and his desires. That's not that's not what they are. We we, we don't prostitute, quote unquote, our girls to tend to uh, to, to to some man's carnal desires. What about saving life? Okay, so what about saving lives? So, so, so there are, uh, what's, what is withdrawn from this story by some is that when there is a, um, a conflict between someone's life and a mitzvah, so normally we do away with the mitzvah, right? But there are exceptions. One exception, exception we, don't, we, don't, um, we don't kill someone to save a life. We don't do idolatry to save a life. And we don't do adultery or rape to save a life. What about something which is not uh, an actual sexual sin? Rather, it's kind of a, a, a variant of that. It's called it's something which is associated with a sexual sin. And there are those that conclude from this episode that even things which are associated with a sexual sin would uh, carry the same weightiness of being of let someone die and not transgress that. So even though even though uh, you know talking behind a fence to some to some uh, female uh, would not be banned by Torah law, right? But because it is tangentially related to a, to a sexual sin, that too will be something that you would not, do to, not be allowed to do to save your life. Well, now, that being said, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead well, I was just going to ask you, this, since you said this is in the Talmud, yes. uh, was this a just hypothetical story discussed, or did this actually happen? Did this, it, seems that, it seems that it happened, that's why it's presented, but even if it didn't happen, it does imply what would have been their perspective okay. had it happened. So he would have been executed. No, he wouldn't be executed. No, well, he wouldn't be he executed. Never did, but he had the desire, but he never committed the act. That's right. So, the, so if he would have died in misery, you know, because so then let him die in misery. So, okay. so what? It's not. It's not the Jewish so, girl's but responsibility. But if he would have acted on it, he would have been executed. Really no, not necessarily. Well, what, if, uh, if she was, was a married woman, yes. But there's a whole question whether or not she was even a married woman. The Talmud entertains the possibility she wasn't even married. Okay. She wasn't even married, but the point is, is that we cannot actively say this girl should prostitute herself, even if it only means not actual prostitution, but you know, she should be the object of some man's sexual needs to save him. I get it. And that's different than trying to actively kill him, right? We don't, right, yeah. right. But I would really like to, to read the epitaph on that guy's tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> read the epitaph. Uh, now, like I said, you read the tar- Go ahead.
Yes. Yes. I don't know why, because it has a much more severe punishment than spilling of seed. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily give an explanation. You know, the Torah laws against uh, uh, sexual sins are not necessarily... Well, ones that we could make the argument there is a reason, you know, interbreeding or whatever. You shouldn't sleep with your sister or with your aunt or whatever. Um, but the Torah doesn't give a reason for it. It does say that these were the abominable... After it lists all the sexual sins... It does say, well, these were the acts of the Canaanites, and don't act like them, because if you act like them, you'll have to suffer severe repercussions. But it doesn't give a reason why. Um, well, we, like I said, it's not a verse in the Torah, and it clearly does not have any of the same severity. Uh, it is discouraged, of course, by, uh, in rabbinic literature, and in the Talmud as well does mention it, but it's not anywhere near with the same severity that... I don't know why. It's just that's the way it is. Yes, um, of course. But we're not, even talking, we're not talking about marriage here necessarily. We're talking about the activities or... Well, is that is, is clearly the society the Torah envisions is not one, uh, you know, it's it's not it's one man and one woman. Clearly, that's the definition of marriage. Uh, the Torah does not wouldn't recognize the marriage of two women uh, or two men. Of course, that would not be a, a marriage recognized by the Torah. But the severity of the restriction against two women being together uh, would be dwarfed by the severity of two men being together. Why? It's a good question. Who knows? Uh, good question. There's a lot. Re- there's a lot. There's a lot about that. Yes. There's a lot. A lot. A lot. Be, a lot. A lot of literature on that. Uh, um, we'll try to keep it to, to this discussion. Maybe we'll have that conversation. You know. I think we're. I think we're doing very well. It may. It's, it is. It is related. I think uh, our society for sure connects those. Um, we will hold off on that. Maybe we'll have a discussion because we're doing so well in this. I think we could. I think we could graduate and talk about other things as well. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to it. <laughs> I don't know if we'll get to it. Now, so I want to kind of stress this point. Um, the Torah tells us that we cannot do things that we want to do. And even things, people that are straight or however you want to call them, heterosexual, they have many, many restrictions against perfectly natural, perfectly healthy uh, uh, heterosexual activities. So the fact that it's maybe, and I'm saying we're assuming that people, some people are genetically predisposed towards, uh, uh, towards homosexual uh, activities, that does not necessarily mean that that should be okay from the Torah's perspective. The Torah has shown again and again that it is trying to tell us how to live a life as a Torah. Remember, it's not for non-Jews, it's for the Torah. And it, it's, it's demanding for us to, uh, you know, to say no to some of our desires, even the ones that are healthy and they're, they're not, they don't damage society, they don't hurt anyone, you know, they're not dangerous or toxic or whatever. Even those things, there are many of those things the Torah says that we cannot do. Um, is wearing wool and linen perfectly natural? I wouldn't know why it wouldn't be, right? And the Torah says you can't do that. 
Uh, is you pl- can, but in two separate garments. Yes, two separate garments is fine. We we don't know why the Torah doesn't give much of an explanation as to well, why. You, That's, you can wear a shirt with William Wallen. Even if it has a label. What I read, the reason was that the uh, idolaters, the priest, priestly idolaters, priests, wore those kind of garments, and that was the reason the Jews did well, so maybe. don't emulate That's the idolaters. I, That's the only explanation I could find. Uh, well, the only explanation that I could find was that there was no explanation okay, that... Well, mo- well apparently... Mo- yeah, so... Um, <laughs> is it normal for a parent to love their child? For most sure. people, yes. For most people. It's very normal, it's right? Normal. That, that's not an abnormal emotion, correct? Of course not. Abraham's told, go sacrifice your kid. Right? Is it normal for a man to want to have intercourse with their wife? Yes. Yeah. Normal. Not. What? The Torah says when your wife is a nida, that activity is prohibited. Oh, during the administration? That's right. Um, is it normal for someone, like we said, to eat certain shellfish? Yes. It's normal for, for a man to eat a, a lot of things that are Bambatoa. We just read last week. All the laws of the kosher in, in, in Leviticus are things that maybe are tasty and they're healthy and they're fine and they're not damaging to society or to the climate or to whomever. And the Torah says, no. The fact that the Torah says that homosexuality is prohibited by Torah law that shouldn't be a brand new phenomenon. It should be something that we've never heard before. Like, this is very much in line with what the Torah is. It means, I, I would say, yes, the Torah is telling us that we can't do something that maybe we want to do. So what, what is so novel about this? I don't know. It's, I, and I don't know why this is, you know, this is, the, this is a topic, by the way, that a lot of people are very hesitant to talk about. People in my shoes. Uh, and like I said, it is, it is a sensitive topic. You have to approach it very sensitively. But once you establish a certain groundwork for discussion, how is it different? Is it, is, a lot of things are very normal. Have yes. you ever been asked to speak to a LBGT? Uh, yeah, so I, was once, I uh, once spoke about this. I said like this. If someone asked me, what would you say if there were 20 young homosexuals, quote-unquote, in the room? That was the question. So I haven't been asked to speak to that community. And I probably wouldn't because I don't want to get into argument. I want to have a constructive conversation about an issue that we all know is a problematic issue and we want to talk about it like adults. But would you go as part of a forum, suppose maybe. To say, say, say with a reform rabbi who maybe mm. had a different perspective? May, maybe. Okay. Uh, maybe. But my point is we don't have, we don't have debates. It's not, it's, not, it's not a debate. We're trying to try to really you know, in a mature fashion as intellectual Jews try to navigate this very testy issue. Uh, if I was speaking to uh, a homosexual or homosexuals, I would tell them like this. I would say, listen, the Torah gives us challenges. Uh, and the greater the challenge, the more difficult it is for us to uphold what the Torah says, the greater the reward, the greater the spiritual transformation. And I'm not, um, I'm not envious of someone having a, such a great challenge, right? If someone is motivated and driven and feels very passionate and very desiresome of this activity, the Almighty <laughs> believes that they can do it, that they can fulfill it, that they can overcome, that they can become great, that they can change themselves in the world. And, you know, and it, it, it should be a testament 
to their capacity to overcome that. You know, and you know, and if should they overcome that, then their status as a spiritual entity will grow and augment and increase to a tremendous level. You know, when we have stories of great heroes, great heroes in, in Jewish history, uh, people that had uh, sexual proclivities of all kinds, uh, who, you know, after years and years of, of, of living what the Torah would consider, in fact, I think most of us here, or most of our society, would also consider very immoral lifestyles, they changed, and they are great heroes for all of eternity. And someone who has this opportunity, right, it's a testament to the fact that the Almighty believes that they can overcome. And that they have the, the internal uh, power and ability to change. And, and to resist. And I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not envious, I'm thankful. And we should all be thankful that we are not presented with such a challenge. But regardless, we're going to have challenges. And it's going to be of this type, this type, or that type, or the other type. And some people have a, a, a challenge. Some people really like other people's stuff. You know, and want to go into, and feel just a drive to go into the store and go to the dressing room and pull up the tags and walk out. That exists. Thankfully, that's not, my challenge, but I have my other challenges. And the Torah is trying to mobilize and encourage us to overcome. And our society, of course, is very, doesn't say that. Our society is very, accept- well, of course we're accepting. It's not about not accepting. It's about motivating someone to become a great person. The Torah believes in us. That's the reason the Almighty believes in us. The Almighty knows our problems, because he formed us and created us. And he gave us a Yetzirah that is most often right, going to overcome us in certain instances. There's no one who never, who never loses to the Yetzirah. Everyone loses. But we get up and we keep on fighting. And our, and our life is a struggle and there's conflict. And we have to overcome. But if we do overcome, we become heroes. Like I said, the story in the Talmud talks about uh, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdai, who was a connoisseur of prostitutes. And there's no women of ill repute that he didn't patronize. I totally found this really expensive prostitute at the other end of the world who charged this whole bag of gold coins for her services. And he travels through seven rivers and he gets there and, you know, and he engages in that activity and. There's a whole exchange that they have and she kind of chastises him and he has this awakening and this epiphany and he's determined to change and he tries to change and he has a hard time doing it and ultimately he's racked with, with, with remorse and he repents and he repents to such a degree and he dies. He dies and there is this prophetic announcement Rabbi Eliezer ben Dudai is welcome to Olam Abba. And of course, when all the great scholars hear that, they, you know, they get upset. And they say, it's possible to acquire your world in one hour. Why do they get upset? The same reason why Warren Buffett gets upset when the guy who wins the lottery moves in next door, right? 
Some people, most people spend their whole lives trying to achieve greatness. Some people get acquired overnight. But yes, you know, we believe that the Almighty tells us that there are things that we want and that are healthy or at least healthy from our body's perspective and are natural from our body's perspective. And the Torah says no. The Torah believes that we have the ability to overcome. And that is empowering. And it's, it's, it's a frustrating, of course, when we fail. But you know what? Every human fails. There's no tzaddik, there's no righteous person in the world that does good and never sins. And by the way, that is a verse in the Torah. It's not possible for someone to never sin. Everyone sins. And because my sins are different than your sins, doesn't mean I judge you. And I think there ought not to be a stigma for people that have, uh, that have this sin versus any other sin. You know, you, should the guy who drives on Shabbos be stigmatized? I don't think we should stigmatize anyone. We should encourage, we should inspire. I don't know if there's room for stigmatization. We're we're too fractured a people to start stigmatizing. You know, if we had a Sanhedrin and there was an outlier, maybe. Maybe that guy gets stigmatized. But should we we stigmatize the guy who drives the Shabbos? Should we stigmatize the quote-unquote homosexual? I don't know. I I don't think so. You know, the fact that someone sins or someone's Desires to sin are different than mine. Does that mean that we're qualitatively different? No. The Almighty challenges everyone on, a, on their individual level. And the hope is, is that regardless of what our, you know, our challenges are, regardless of what sins we have committed, that we, we keep on fighting, and we keep on struggling, and we keep on resisting. And that means that we're at tzaddik. A tzaddik is someone who's righteous. Righteous doesn't mean never sinning. No one never sins. Righteous means even when you sin, you get up and keep on fighting. Sheva yipot tzaddik v'kam. The verse says, seven times that tzaddik falls down and gets up. And I know this may sound cliche, but some cliches are true. And it may sound cliche to say, oh, it's not about how many times you fail, it's how, it's how you respond to failure, but it's actually true. No one comes into this world and it leaves this world and never sins. And that's you know? why we don't give all these kids all these trophies for just being there. They have to lose once in a while. Yeah, that's that, that's a healthy thing, right? <laughs> I guess for kids, but uh, you know, but <coughs> not, not that's that yeah. is life. Exactly. That is life. Life is about resisting. I'll tell you in a second. Resisting the 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 desire, the challenges the conflicts that we have. That, that's what it is. So if I'm talking to, to a bunch of gays, right, which we're assuming that that term exists, right, or a bunch of not-gays that have other desires, or a, a bunch of people that really, really like shellfish, why are they different groups? You know? And our society, I think, has kind of ironically caused this to be stigmatized by focusing on it so much. You know, If you believe in the Torah then you believe that everything that is opposed by the Torah is opposed by God. Why should you start making classifications and rankings of which sins are really bad and which sins are, eh, they're okay, they're one of us, right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm... Uh, <laughs>
was going to say, I know many, I have several friends, uh, but, they're, but they're not happy. They know that it's wrong, but they cannot fix it. Okay, well, you know. Because that's what he was just saying. They got to keep trying. Yeah, I know. I was saying. Yeah, listen. Um, they seem happy, but they're not. Well, and, and, and being, being upset with a sin is in itself an element of repentance, right? Part of repentance is regret. And sometimes people are regretting even as they're sinning. And you could have two sins that are identical to the naked eye, to the human eye, but to the spiritual eye, they're very different. Because the Almighty takes into account someone's feelings, you know, someone's emotions, someone's responses, someone's resistance, and someone's displeasure with the fact that they're sinning. And that too is an element of repentance. And it's, you know, it demonstrates that this person is a fighter. It's not about how many times you sin, it's about how you're resisting. And that's how we measure our greatness. And someone who is a quote-unquote, like I remember, every time I say homosexual, I say quote-unquote, because we're not looking at homosexuals, we're not people that are committing sins. Uh, and someone who has that tendency and resists it because the Torah says that that's a no-no, is a great hero, in my view. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they can be transformative uh, to themselves and to the world. You know, what, that, that's what life's about. Life's about the fact that we are created in a way, you know, we're wired to do what the Torah says not to do. And the Torah is about educating us to be more soul-like. Of course, our body wants to sin. That's why it's called a body. That, that's what it does. And our soul is, is wired to not sin. But we don't feel our soul. Our soul is secondary in the totem pole of our existence. And the goal is to flip that. Go ahead. Bernie. A lot of this is, is self, self-discipline. Is Absolutely. Be good for the, good for the and you know what? I'll tell you. Self-discipline, by the way, having that impacts your life in every part of your life. If someone has a self-discipline and is able to resist and able to delay the need for gratification and has willpower to say no to the Yetzirah, they can do whatever they want. Once you have the willpower, that's a gateway to anything that you would want in the world. You know, if you have the willpower, you'll be able to push through any resistance in any pursuit, regardless of whether it's religious or otherwise. So does this address your genetic question, uh, Barney? No, there's no question in my mind that it's... uh... No, it doesn't. Well, but I mean, I mean no, I mean, we, we, yeah. all, we all agree about genetics. No, no, everybody agrees about genetics. I, well, I mean, we're, 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 there we're, people think it's a choice. I mean, there are obviously there are some people who go into homosexual stuff for, as a choice, but not because they're wired that way. But for the most part, they're wired. To me, they're. Well, they're we're, 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 we're trying to avoid that debate. Over, at least Jewish law is saying. Yeah, yeah. Why, well, should a heteros, why should a heterosexual be allowed to do what he wants with his wife or his girlfriend, whatever? And a homosexual, quotes homosexual, have to resist it for the whole his whole life, even though he has. Like he, I said, but has everyone, everyone has. Huh? No, no, no. But forget about. Well, I mean, look, I might. They might most, be married. Most, homosexuals you know, get married in this country now, too, you know. Well, you and I might <laughs> think J-Lo is attractive. 
Okay, but Absolutely. does that give uh, <laughs> does that give you favorite. or me the right to take her just because we? Think yeah, the that point is, is that. Her in, in but the, but the point I is, lust in my heart. You know? <laughs> but know, the like point is, is that there's no way to there's no way to avoid confrontations that we'll have with our desires, regardless of what yeah. orientation we have. And yes, the, me, me, our point was not to engage in the debate as to whether or not it's genetic, because that's a different debate, and there's, 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 there's arguments on both sides, and we don't want to go there. But we're, we're willing to accept, for the sake of the argument, that there is a genetic predisposition towards activities that are banned by the Torah, and that's what the Torah bans them, and that provides opportunity for greatness when there is resistance to that. Um, what about in Israel? So I, I think that, you know, pretty like we said, the, the, the premise, I'm sorry? The community. Yes. Well, some people are, some people are. Depends on what community. Yeah, but I mean, So um, the premise of a Jewish state in Israel, uh, that has been, you know, the subject of intense, intense debate for a long time. Of course, traditionally that meant a lot more than just having another state. You know, there's 250 states, whatever, in the United Nations. Is Israel just like any other one of them? No. Some people may... It is the most human rights abusive on the planet. According to the U.N. Oh, oh yeah, go to the end. Oh. The Which says right, a lot so more about the UN than Israel. But that's okay. That's why Trump wants to get rid of it. <laughs> well, I think most conservatives want to abolish the UN. <laughs> or move well, it out of this country anyway. Well, okay. Um, but but how do we view it? So clearly the United Nations and does not view it as being like any other state, because if they would, they wouldn't treat it very differently. So ironically, the non-Jews, they view Israel differently than, means remember, like you have hundreds of millions of people living in Bangladesh, and it's never made to the news, ever, right? Does it ever make, is there a good thing of any one story from Bangladesh in the past 10 years? Did they get a typhoon or anything? Yeah, that's the only story. They keep murdering the liberal bloggers. Yeah, but the people killing each other there on a daily basis never hear about it. You know, Dhaka. If um, if uh, you know, if there's three hundred thousand people that are dead in Syria because of the civil war, no one cares about it. Any any story that happens, if Israel they start building an apartment, you know, a little bit over the green line, quote unquote, which is land that was lawfully acquired, like any land that we have in this country is acquired, somehow that becomes the front page of the New York Times. So the world at large views Israel as being different than any other secular state. Now, in the Jewish community, certainly this has been a subject of intense debate. Uh, I think the original Zionists, the original secular Zionists, their dream was to create a state like any other. Uh, In fact, Max Nordau, who was one of the disciples of Herzl and one of the, uh, the, the progenitors of of modern secular Zionism and the leader of Zionism after Herzl died, I, th- I think it was him who said, it might have been someone else, but it, it, it might have been him. I don't remember who it was. I can look this up for you guys if you want. He said the dream of, the dream of, of Zionism is to have a, 
Jewish policemen arresting a Jewish prostitute, something like that, something of that nature. That it was it's a state like any other. If there's laws, it's you know uh, we have criminals and we have a criminal justice system like any other country. Uh, something like that. So, I don't remember the. Uh, sorry, I botched this. I know I should have researched this, right? Uh, but some, something to that nature, you know, uh, some, something to that effect. Uh, and that was the predominant position of secular Zionists. Now that's changed. And that's why, by the way, Herzl was agreeable to the idea of moving Israel to Uganda uh, because. Where, what does it matter where it is, right? Only one is a Jewish state. Now, of course, the majority of the Zionists were the ones who were looking at it in the historical perspective. And that is, how could you have a Jewish state anywhere else outside of Israel? It was to reestablish, to bring the Jews back to Israel, to reestablish sovereignty over the land that we have been yearning for for thousands of years. That was the perspective of the majority of the, of the, of the Zionists. Thus, the premise of Israel is more than just a secular state bound by secular laws. It is a Jewish state, certainly inspired by the Torah and inspired by our heritage and our tradition and thus Jewish law as well. So I think in Israel, there certainly should be a focus of, uh, of trying to understand what a state ought to look like from the Torah's viewpoint. So while we said that in the United States it should be perfectly fine for someone to vote however they think the United States should look like, whatever vision they think should be is best in the United States, um, and that, that could be influenced by morality, could be influenced by taxes or whatever, but when it comes to Israel, I think certainly the vision for Israel should be what does a Jewish state look like, and that should have a heavy influence and inspiration from what the, what the Torah and what the Jewish tradition and Jewish history has envisioned for what life should be under those circumstances. But if the Torah is only for Jews and you have a large population that isn't Jewish in Israel, doesn't that lead to the possibility of two separate laws? One is Jewish law for the Jewish state and the Okay, so this is a tricky question. This is a tricky question. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of been grappled with for a long time in Israel. Uh, we have a series of letters that were exchanged between Ben Gurion and Rabbi Herzog. Rabbi Herzog was the first chief rabbi of Israel. By the way, his grandson is a big politician now in Israel. The head of the opposition in Israel is also a Herzog, is the grandson of the first chief rabbi of Israel. Uh, now it's called the Zionist Union. Hamachanetzioni. Zionist Union, um, which is which is basically uh, it's labor mixed with uh, some of the parties, um, but the, he was trying to figure out what would a Jewish state under Jewish law look like. Like, what about the Sanhedrin? What about the Temple? What about Jewish law? What about ritual law? All those things were already discussed 50, 60 years ago. Now, of course, we know that Israeli law, while it has some sort of Jewish undertones, it's primarily a secular law. Like, it's, it's a liberal democracy. Uh, and there has been a heavy emphasis on, on preserving that. Like I said, the, the Arabs and the, uh, the Druzes and all the non-Jewish elements in Israel are treated equally in the law. And, you know, there's an argument that that's a very good thing because we have to progress, I would say, at a certain pace. Uh, do I think that do I think that Israel right tomorrow should 
go bomb Temple Mount and start building, pulling out all the crane? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think maybe that we shouldn't try to get too far ahead of ourselves. You know, we don't know how it's all going to culminate. Yeah, However, like Kahani thought that they should. Mahani, a lot of people he wanted everybody. Out. I, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people uh, believe, believe that. He spoke at our synagogue, a little synagogue in, in Jersey, years, not too long before he was. Uh, he was killed. killed yeah. yeah. Um, but the end game, what we know, and we, we can kind of see the formulation of how it's going to look like. We can see the basic construct. The end game is where Israel is going to be shifted, probably gradually, I would assume, towards more of a Torah law. Um, so, I, you know, I know there's a law, I mentioned this in a previous class, there's a law in Israel today that's being debated. I think it's called the Israel Basic Law. It's a very controversial law because it, it's really taking a stab at this issue. Uh, it's about kind of defining Israel as a Jewish state, thus removing Arabic as an official language, uh, thus, um, I guess, determining or um, announcing or declaring that Israel law ought to be inspired by Torah law as looking at that the Talmud as being a guiding text for law, maybe under certain circumstances, under maybe uh, for regards to for, for criminal or civil cases. Uh, we already know that 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 um, uh, that a lot of a lot of civil law in the form of marriages and divorces are already governed by Torah law. So that's a controversial issue because, well, what about you know what what about um, intermarriages? So uh, intermarriages are not recognized by Torah law. Um, should they be recognized by Israeli law? So, as a liberal democracy, you should say yes. Why is the why is the government interfering with religion? But remember, Israel is kind of different already. Already in that in that sense, so it's a big controversial issue in Israel, where some couples have to go to Cyprus to get married and come back. It's because by design, there was Israel doesn't have a constitution. That's right. So they're, they're trying to kind of Not change like that. But either way, we see that that the, the rabbinate has political power in Israel. Now there's benefits and drawbacks for that, of course, depending on your perspective. But well, we only, only to be married by uh, Orthodox rabbis. Uh, well, uh, the, you know the the, the other uh, forms of denominations, if you yeah, will, yeah, yeah. don't really have much of a foothold in Israel. Yeah. Uh, but I'll give you an example of this, right? Every let's not talk about kind of intermarriages. That's the exception in Israel, right? <coughs> But every couple that gets engaged and wants to have a marriage license from the government needs to undergo some sort of education in traditional Jewish marriage laws and customs. So that means that the legal, the, the, the legal government that oversees marriage and divorce is influenced by the religion. So we already see how it's it's different than maybe a liberal democracy anywhere else in the world. Well, and that's you know that seems kind of benign to me that what you just that they have to have education, but not that they're obliged to follow Torah law. But I thought the trend. I was intrigued by what you said when you say the trend is maybe getting more towards uh, Torah law or religious law. When I hear so much that the so many more people. I mean, you're walking in, particularly in Tel Aviv, and you've got people with tattoos, and you've got all this 
kind of rebellious behavior more and more in Israel. I thought it was more the opposite, that it was getting up far more secular. Yes, yeah, so, um, so there is a polarization. Um, um, yes, that, 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 that is true. Like we said, this is, this is a issue of tremendous tension in Israel. This is the, the, maybe the, the greatest political, well, one of the greatest political issues of tension that there are in Israel. I even heard uh, that I think, Hollywood is getting that not Israel, that Tel Aviv becoming like one of the nightlife capitals. Oh yeah, oh yeah. World, and a lot of Hollywood people are getting, oh, yeah. getting, going, getting apartments there and going there. And yeah. they're not boycotting. You know, that's well, that's you know. The, I, I would say perhaps the two yeah. biggest issues that are kind of perpetual issues of controversy in Israel are going to be. Number one, like someone else, someone previously mentioned, what is the relationship that the country, that the state, that the population, the civil, that the, the citizens have with the Arabs? What to do with the West Bank, quote unquote, the Judean Samaria, the part of Israel that was captured, as Texas was, as California was, <laughs> as every other part of the United States was. It was captured uh, uh, in a war with enemies that threatened the annihilation, sent the Jews into the sea. That is on the side. It was captured uh, lawfully. Uh, but it's still considered occupied for whatever reason by uh, a lot of other countries. But what to do with that? Uh, how to try to uh, negotiate a peace with a partner? And the partner is, uh, we're stretching the definition of partner to call them partners. Uh, but partners with a neighbor or with a faction that is dead set against your existence. So. For example, the Hamas Charter has three no's. No recognition, uh, no negotiation, and no peace with Israel. Try to negotiate with such a partner. You can't, right? So uh, there is tremendous debate in Israel as to what to do. Now, I think that um, there is a realization by almost all factions that peace with the Palestinians right now, with the way it's currently situated, with the current leadership, is not possible. Everything that's been tried, that could potentially work, has been tried and has not worked. Uh, and that's one issue that I think is, is at the forefront of a lot of the political divide in Israel. But another thing, and I think it's growing, is kind of how do we define ourselves? Are we just like any other country? Or are we a Jewish country that is different than other countries? And therefore, I think in... in, in I'll get to use in a, in a second, but I think in the context of our discussion, I think that this should be uh, a major contributor to our perspective of what gay marriage or homosexuality should be treated like in Israel. Uh, in Jerusalem every year, there's a gay pride parade. Is that appropriate? In the holy city of Jerusalem? Is that appropriate? Huh? Well, there's, tel- there's three of them. There's one in Eilat and one in Tel Aviv and one in Jerusalem. Do the rabbis throw rocks at the parade? I know they do at buses in Jerusalem. Well, I don't know. I, I have never met any rabbi that throws rocks. Okay, wait, slow down. Yeah, slow down. Sure. I have never met, I've lived in Israel for 10 years. I've never met any rabbi that throws rocks at anyone. Okay, but I read that there was some. There were at the buses that go through Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Well, no, there's no buses. There's no bus service in Israel on, on Shabbos. Well, then what did I there? I'm, then maybe you I'm, know. There's, so there's no. There's no. There's no bus services on Shabbos. There are individual car owners that drive on Shabbos, and there are some neighborhoods that are cordoned off that they don't allow cars to come in through Shabbos unless it's an ambulance or whatever. Um, but uh, there, uh, there used to be a trend. People, if they went through like a really religious neighborhood. 
Some people would throw rocks at them, which is in itself a problem because you can't really lift a rock. A, lot, a rock is mutsa. You can't lift a rock on Shabbat. So I don't know why people do that. Certainly it's not rabbis doing rabbis doing that. Uh, it could be thugs or hoodlums. Um, uh, but there are people maybe that are masquerading as rabbis. Okay. I, people that look maybe to uh, the editors of the Daily Mail as being rabbis because they have really long beards and really long payas. Uh, but if we're using um, someone's appearance to determine who they are, you know, we shouldn't classify Osama bin Laden as a really religious Orthodox Jew because he has a long beard and a lot of kids, right? The <laughs> question is what your behavior is, right? If someone is a quote-unquote rabbi, uh, and they're lifting rocks and throwing it on Shabbat, then they're not behaving by Torah law. Maybe we shouldn't label them as rabbis, right? They're a rabbi. Yeah, then there's someone who's not. Then, they, then the story should be written as Jews that are not observant of, of Torah threw rocks at someone. Well, Osama bin Laden, you know. That's a joke. That was a joke. Yeah, that was a joke. But he has, you're saying a lot of kids maybe identifies him as a rabbi, but he had, <laughs> he had a lot of kids from a lot of different wives. I don't think that's. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. He himself was the 17th of 51 kids, right? You know, someone made a joke, right? Someone said, it's always the middle 22 kids, huh? <laughs> uh, I read an article the other week on um, one of the big controversies in, in Israel right now is teaching Arabs to school children. Arabic? Arabic, excuse me. They, there's going to be a new thing where all Israeli children learn Arabic in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Oh, bilingual education. What's wrong with that? Yeah. So, um, either way, um, I, I, I think, I think that, yeah. So it's, it is interesting. Like I said, how do we navigate how this? Pop- this? Yes. Yeah, well, uh, integrate. I don't. The integrates. A, a, it's, it's very hard to integrate. There's no. There's no integration. There's very little integration. There are some neighborhoods where there's Jews and Arabs living together. And a lot of the Arabs in Israel are totally fine, you know, but a lot of them would pull out knives and stab you without any hesitation. They're doing it. And they're doing it every day. Um, and, you know, it's a very difficult, very stressful, if you would imagine, such a you know, such, such, imagine such a life where every day there's people pulling out knives and randomly stabbing Jews because they're Jewish and they're motivated by some sort of religious compulsion to do that. Imagine what kind of stress that is, where you're walking in the supermarket, you don't know if some guy's going to pull a knife at you or just ask you for the time. Well, that would be the same as living in some ghettos and see, like, Chicago. Okay, maybe. Probably more, yeah. more than... Oh, it's just one. Yeah, yeah. And, Obama has a lot yes, of sons that look like him in Chicago, but you never hear him talk about them. Yeah. Only the ones, you know, but anyway, that's a different We behaved so well till now. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, oh, secular law, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, it will happen in the end of days. The mountain of the temple of Hashem will be firmly established at the head of the mountain. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will spring to it. Many people 
So this is describing the Messianic era, where the whole nation will know, the whole world will know about God and will recognize the, uh, the supremacy of Israel as the center of, of, of moral guidance to the world. Okay, well, no, it, it doesn't say that. It says that all, the whole Torah will recognize Torah, and certainly Jewish people, the whole world will recognize Torah, so the Jewish people will be observant of Torah and be back in Israel. And that we already see kind of the beginning of that formulation. Um, will they be obligated by Torah? Not necessarily. Um, well, then maybe they could look to it to, for for guidance. They could look well, to it. Will be the light to the nations. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, that not is. That's right. That's right. Um, and we see kind of how that could happen, right? If you if you read that verse two hundred years ago in this setting, it would be very hard for us to imagine how many different steps we needed to be checked for that to be fulfilled. Um, and I, and I, but I and I think that's why that's why in Israel it should it should be different. In Israel, we have to realize the. I guess the the scope and the stakes of having a state and have and what it, what what it actually means, and to have a gay pride parade in Jerusalem, I think, is a, a certain alienation of an ideal. Um, I have a verse here from Leviticus. After it brings all those things that are, all those prohibited uh, sexual activities, it says as follows. Leviticus 18.24 Do not be contaminated through any of these for through all of these the nations that I expelled before you have been contaminated. Don't do any of these sins because the people that lived in Canaan before you did before you arrived they did these things. The land became contaminated and I recalled its iniquity upon it and the land vomited its inhabitants. The reason why the people that were living in Israel before we got there were kicked out by us is because they committed those sins and the land itself has a spiritual sensitivity against those activities, and they, it, it, the land expelled people from it. But you, Jewish people, shall safeguard my decrees and my judgment and not commit any of these abominations, the native and the proselyte uh, uh, who lives among you, for the inhabitants of the land who are before you committed these abominations and the land became contaminated. Let not the land disgorge you, vomit you out, for having contaminated it as it vomited the nation that was there before you. What it's telling us is that the land of Israel has a special sanctity, and its sanctity uh, repels sinners of, of, this, of this kind. And we know that we're living in Israel. We have sovereignty of the land of Israel conditionally. If we understand, appreciate, have the sensibilities to what that means then we're entitled to be there. Otherwise, if we abandon that, then we too will be kicked out as but, well. But we did abandon that, didn't That's we? Right, That's right, we worked with that. That's what the diaspora is all about. And we were kicked out. We didn't but follow the instructions. What correctly. Sandy just read is about the bringing, coming back at some point. And it's which, coming back not just physically, it's coming back spiritually as well. But also, isn't that also another reason, among others, that Jesus was rejected as the Messiah? Or it should be rejected because... That the, the things that are describing what the messianic age will be, he did not fulfill. He didn't fulfill any one of the prophecies. That's correct. And that's very specific what yes. it has to be. Yes, absolutely. Yes. In this messianic time, in Israel, will that be done away with and 
that's a good question. And, and, and like I said, we would kind of reference those letters between Ben Gurion and, and, and Herzog because they were trying to kind of flesh out what that would look like. Um, even under Jewish law, there are, like we said, there are there is going to be an enforcement of Jewish law, but it's enforcement of Jewish law for a nation that is worthy of that. Uh, will there be, still be stop signs and speeding tickets? I don't know. Possibly. I think there's still like there's still the need to have laws that are modernized. Even though there's no there's no there's no law of stop signs and street lights and speed. Well, maybe if it's on there. We know in Israel. If you ever you ever driven in Israel, they need some. They need, <laughs> they maybe, need the traffic. All the traffic laws that they can get. Well, maybe it'll be in their hearts not to speed anymore. Maybe so, I don't know. That's a good question. But how exactly? Uh, this issue is navigated is going to be very fascinating to watch over the uh, you know over the next you know I would say probably uh, sooner rather than later we'll find out that question. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's prediction of the Torah. We find that actually happens. The uh, Trump's not going to like that. <laughs> <laughs> not the, as of last week. The IDF bankrolls, I think, up to three abortions per female soldier per year. By the way, the only country in the world that has mandatory conscription of women is Israel. And the reason behind that, by the way may indeed have to do with all those abortions because those those women are not in combat they may have an M16 they may be trained to basic training but they're not in combat they're in all the other kinds of roles besides for combat uh, and yes like we said Israel today is not perfect clearly we're not at the finish line but but an eye towards the vision of what Israel can and hopefully will become I think is important in this context, in all contexts, when, when we have this conversation. Absolutely. A lot of fun, guys. Um, well, it's not an easy subject. Uh, it's a difficult one. We don't try to just get away with the easiest solution because the easiest solution is not necessarily one that is uh, in accordance you know, with, with our understanding of the Torah. It's not appropriate to say, let's just cut it out and not talk about it. We talked about it, we have to understand it, we have to approach it very, sen- very sensitively. It, there's a lot of personal experiences and people that we know that may interfere with our capacity to really understand and address the issue correctly. Uh, it's not an easy one. Uh, there's a lot of different moving parts that we have, but we have to realize that this is not necessarily that you know, qualitatively different than other discussions that we have. And the fact that Torah bans things that are allowed or that are, that are allowed in, 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 in secular life and that are encouraged even and that are perfectly healthy for our body, the Torah demands greatness from us. And the greatness may indeed only be possible with a struggle with resistance, with overcoming things that we are 
uh, that we are wired to do. Yes. Well, I know we need to go, and maybe you can respond. You know, I read Leslie's question that she passed. Yes, to you I did not. Before, I was hard. Yeah, I apologize. Before, uh, she passed it to you. It's very interesting, you know, about the witnesses. I think. Yes. So the only way it could be proven is, would be with witnesses in the court with all the procedural but laws. That no. Well, that's that's interesting because. Yes, so no. The only way to know this is if there are observers that 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 witness it. It's very very hard to prove. Remember, the guy himself, the uh, the participants themselves are not good witnesses. So the guy comes to court and says, "I did X, Y, or Z." That testimony is scrapped. No, I would never delete your conversation. Okay, you can add it in. But anyways, so, I mean, me going to another woman, for instance, which never happens. But anyways, the only way to adjudicate... The only way to prove this in a Jewish court of law would be with witnesses that are not thinking you. That are not participating in the activity themselves; those people are inadmissible as witnesses. And the same thing for a man. I mean, for any for any sin. But I guess if some man said you never believe any criminal visited with last night, I mean, that's say, not admissible. A man cannot render himself a sinner. A man cannot testify against himself. Oh, okay. Great. Okay, lots Where of fun, guys. Where did get the expression "mitzvah shikshem I didn't want to bring it up in the.